Welcome to Radical Connectivity with Dr. Kelly Donahoe, where we dig deep, get messy, and work towards connecting more deeply with the people around us. So come on in, pull up a chair, get comfy, and let's just get started. Welcome. Today on Radical Connectivity, my guest is my friend, Tanisha. First, I want to tell you how Tanisha and I met and then a little bit about her before we dig into our conversation. So in 2012, uh, I got married and pregnant uh, on my honeymoon. And I also was finishing up my doctoral training. So the timing was uh, pretty spectacular to say the least. So I had matched for my pre-doctoral internship at Johns Hopkins Counseling Center. I was very excited. Um, It was a great opportunity. I loved their training methods. And when I found out I was pregnant, um, I said to my husband, okay, let's drive down. I just want to let them know that I'm going to have a baby, that I'm going to show up in September. I was due in November. So I wanted to let them know that I was going to have this baby and I was going to show up in September kind of round and ready to go. So we drive down there. We were living in Pittsburgh at the time. So we drive to Baltimore to tell my training director. I was so nervous and it went seemingly really wonderful. To make a super long story short, uh, did not work out and they ended up not being pleased with my due date or the need for maternity leave. And although many of the rules have changed now and interns are more protected, at the time, the rules kind of, well, they didn't protect me. They, interns were considered students and so rules for employment did not apply. And I was basically told that I could take all 15 days of my vacation as a doctoral intern in a row. So that would be three weeks of maternity leave. Or I wouldn't be able to finish my internship on the last day of June, which is when um, interns finish, and I would fail. That happened, so I, I had to say that I was going to forfeit the match, and it all worked out. I ended up um, being able to go to Pitt, and everything was wonderful, and it was fantastic. And I share this story with you, although things have changed, I don't even know if the same people are there, and what, what happened with that situation. Uh, But that was definitely eye-opening for me. I was 10 weeks pregnant at the time. We weren't even telling people. And that drastically changed my life. And did it all work out? Yes. But also, I think it's an important story to share with the world. So here's how Tanisha and I met. When uh, we were all matched, the training director sent out an email that said, hey, here's your intern cohort and get to know each other. You're all gonna be together for this year of you know intense and special training. Tanisha and I were both on the list and then another email was sent a couple weeks later after the events that I just described had transpired. And the second email said, guess what, whoopsie, you know, I don't know if it said either Kelly's not gonna be there or here's the change, here's the person that is gonna be here. Um, And so what happened was Tanisha reached out to me and said, hey, what's up? Why aren't you going to be here? And our friendship bloomed from that moment forth. Tanisha is a psychologist. Uh, She is now a clinical professor at Medell College, and she's also in private practice. She does a ton of work and research in a lot of different areas. And one thing that her and I always get to talk about and we reach out to each other from time to time, is about diversity and inclusion, 
what it's like to be an Indian woman married to a man from Iran here in the United States at this time and place and raising small children. In fact, the reason this episode is called Election Baby is because this incredible woman is due with her third child the day after this extremely important election. So this episode is all about what it feels like when politics impact your daily life. And so I really would like you to welcome Tanisha into your space and hear what she has to say. She said some things in this time that we had together that I have never thought of. And I really, as always, enjoyed my time with her. So without further ado, we're just going to get right into our conversation. So first, I wanted to talk a little bit about being far away from home and more about you and that piece, what it's like to be far, far from where you come from and all all that huge, gigantic part of your life. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, as as I think about that question, I I feel like I'm going to give voice also to my husband's experience, who's really far away from home. And not because it's geographically far away, but it's far away because of politics, because of two governments and the and the pain that it's putting everyday people through, which I think is up our alley. Well, I told you this was going to be a political episode because it is election week. And don't forget... The personal is political and the political is personal. So here's an example of that. When Trump won the presidency, I was working at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, PA, in the counseling center as a therapist. And for those of you who don't know, CMU has a gigantic population of students from around the world. Their international student population is humongous. And that's partially because they attract the best students from all around the world. Many of my patients when I worked there were international students who were very worried about what was happening with the travel bans. If if you can dig in your mind and remember back to the travel bans that are still happening. So for many people, we go on in life and we forget that these policies continue to impact people. And so some of these brilliant, wonderful students that I was working with came from the banned countries and were worried about being able to get on a plane to do such things as go to conferences and present their research. They had to send, I know several students that this happened to, and for those of you who are listening who are academics or have ever presented any of your work, you know that this is a huge big deal. So part of what we have to do as academics and to get word out about the work that we're doing is to go to conferences and present our work. Several students that I worked with were afraid, rightfully so, to get on an airplane to travel to, you know, California, for instance, from Pennsylvania for a giant conference to present their work. And so they had to send their work with someone else to present it or not present it at all. So, of course, that's obviously on a personal level sets people back but also on a professional level, right? I mean, it stops all of us from benefiting from the work that these students were conducting. Some of it life-saving work, some of it extremely important um, artificial intelligence work, computer engineering. That work 
was greatly halted as students couldn't collaborate, they couldn't work together, they couldn't apply for internships or other opportunities in other states for fear of getting on a plane and then being deported when they landed. They couldn't travel for the holidays, they couldn't see their families, they became separated from families. These policies impact real people. And you know, if you're listening and you're thinking, yes, but the safety, we need to stop and think for a moment of what it means when you pick specific countries, right? It's a hot button issue. Does it necessarily make us safer? No, because here's what happens. People that are going to do things will find other ways where people in our lives around us in this great melting pot country get stopped it impacts their lives, it impacts their research. And what I think a lot of people might not understand is that we have a melting pot for real. And much of the beautiful, brilliant, wonderful, important research and breakthroughs that we have in medicine and in academia that positively help us all come from people who are here temporarily and often from places that might, with just the name of the country, make some people feel nervous. Now here's a great example. When I'm introducing you to Tanisha, I want you to know that her husband is from Iran. And since the beginning of the Trump presidency, he has not been able to see his family and they have not been able to come here. And although, do I think I'm gonna change your mind? No, but is my goal to personalize and bring home the idea that although these policies might make us feel inside very, oh yes, I'm safe now because of these strong, loud policies, maybe that makes you feel safer. I'm sorry to tell you that it actually can breed hate and we know over the long term make us less safe. In the moment, it might make you feel like, well, we've done something now. We've closed down that border. We've stopped those people. But those people are largely human beings like you and I who are now separated from their families and can't be together. And what I wanna bring that background into our conversation for today. So you know that when we're talking to Tanisha, we're talking to a woman who, her children can't meet their grandparents because of fear. We do have creative and other ways besides universal bans to control movement of human beings. I am far away from home. And I think at this point, the interesting thing was in 2016, when Donald Trump won the election, I think that was the first time in a long, long time that I even realized that America is not my home. So let me back up a little bit. In 2007, when I immigrated to the US, there was a part of me that always knew that I did not belong in India. So I was born and raised in India. I was 22, 23 when I moved to the US for my doctoral studies. And the main reason I felt like I wanted to go abroad was because when I was 17, I went to Finland for a youth exchange program. And I was exposed to different cultures, different parenting styles, what a broad perspective and thinking looks like. I mean, it's Scandinavia. But I was also aware that I was like a, a, a fly in the milk. Like I was, I was exotic and I was just really welcomed. And in India, my ability to speak up, my ability to challenge traditions, my ability to ask questions that may have uncomfortable answers, which was such a natural instinct for me. Um, I would be called rude. I would be called, you know, things like she's too forward thinking. Mothers would be telling their daughters like, you know, 
whatever happens in her home can happen in her home. But it, that, that's not how things work in our family. So I used to be that black sheep primarily because of my ability to verbalize emotions and thoughts and speak up in the face of relative injustice, even though I never did it perfectly. I still don't claim to do it perfectly. But the mere fact that I would speak up against traditions, and when I'm talking about traditions, I'm talking about simple things like, why can't my cousin, who has the same relationship to our great-grandmother, go to my great-grandmother's funeral because he's male and I have to stay home with the women? I'm not going to do that. So... So I'm I'm not talking about just being an argumentative kid. I'm talking about this woman literally had the same relationship to him. He and I are the same age. And I was in my eighth grade when it's ninth ninth grade. So like high school is that over here? The beginning mm-hmm. of high school when my grandmother, great grandmother passed away and we were super attached to her. Oh. She was like the center of the family. And yeah, the, the morning of her funeral in India, the tradition is all the men can go to where they're cremating the body, but uh-huh. that will not happen for the women. The women don't get to do that. Wait. Okay. So tell me for a second. I want to know more. I want to know so many more things. I want to know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So cremation is the norm. Cremation is the norm. Yes. I did not know that. For Hindus. Okay. So India is a majority Hindu country. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times when I'll be talking with you today, I'll actually also be bringing in this idea of if I'm a Hindu Brahmin, which is the caste mm-hmm. system, right? I'm going to bring that into the daughter of, and I am a Brahmin in India and I'm a Hindu in India, which actually puts me equivalent to a white woman in mm-hmm. India. Like a right. white woman in America is a Hindu Brahmin woman in India. Like that's mm-hmm. how I see the two parallels. That's my perspective. And so, so you mean as far as like privileges yeah. and, okay, yep, okay. Privilege, Sorry. the ability to move up in society, to move yes. up along the privilege line, all of those mm-hmm. things, I was really well placed. Mm-hmm. I was also born into a family which had a female at the head of the family because my great-grandpa died and then my grandpa died which left my great-grandmother, who I was just talking to you about, in charge. And so because she was the respected one, and everybody told the line, growing up in a matriarchal family, with its own tones of misogyny, of course, it was still patriarchal in a lot of ways, but with her at the center, all the men would revere to look up to a woman, right? It was She was the center of the family. <laughs> and you got to see that. I got to see that, yes. And and the other thing that, that was a huge influencing uh, factor in my life is my father, who lost his father at the age of 15, which is why he had to depend on his mother and his grandmother for so much. And so he realized how little they could accomplish and how little they could provide for him and his little brother simply because... The society society would not allow women to progress in a certain kind of way, which meant at the age of 16, overnight, he had to take on the burden of being the oldest son. Wow. From being a child, he went to being an oldest, like the oldest son in the family. And so it was pretty much shifting his dreams from wanting to go to medical school, which would have taken him a long time to go. He would have needed a lot of education, a lot of support to shifting gears and going to business school. And then really finding a job, meeting my mom, you know, all all that kind of stuff. So he pretty much started from scratch. So we weren't even born, I would say, 
I would say born middle class. That that would mm-hmm. be my because I never worried about food. I never worried about shelter, clothing, any of that stuff. That stuff was all always provided. But he would always tell me stories about the one thing I have to do in life is get an education. And the rationale was with an education, you will get access to social class. I mean, he, I can provide a certain amount of social class. But mm-hmm. once you start making your own money, no man can tell you what you have to do and where you have to be and where you have to go. Because I, I, I know. <laughs> I know. I mean, not at all typical. Not at all typical. Yeah. So you have this female role model and then your father, your father not only supporting you, but guiding you. Yes. And all of his choices then were very much based in making sure that the three women in his life, so his wife, myself, and my younger sister, that they, it was sort of like this, he was always preparing for what would happen to us in the eventuality that, like, if he was gone suddenly, could we handle everything he was doing? So it started with where he was doing sort of trading in rubber chemicals and, like, factory, like, raw material and things like that. And then eventually it shifted where he started actually a watches and a jewelry business, which is very, very conducive to women in the house running it, right? Like you can see, like, if you think about professions in terms of like who you're dealing with, if you're dealing in rubber chemicals, you know, you're dealing with the labor class in that sense, not in an arrogant way, but places where traditionally patriarchal, you know, boundaries will not allow a woman to cross over easily. But retail is something a woman can handle. Right? Yes. Like shopping, we can handle. Yes. Jewelry, spending yes. money, get all that stuff. So, so I mean, for him as a man to get into retail was a really awkward thing. It didn't feel natural. He definitely felt more himself in the rubber chemical business. But then when he moved into this zone of retail, it was a very intentional choice. He had two daughters and he was determined that they would not be dependent on a man for their livelihood, for their existence. I mean, other than him, he has his own. <laughs> he has his own. He's <laughs> for us to stay dependent on him forever. But he absolutely, you know, he's, he's more of the, the message to me always was, you can do everything that a man does in this world. However, you have to work for it. You're going to mm-hmm. have to work much harder for it you will have to fight at every step in order to accomplish it. Mm-hmm. And people will constantly doubt you in terms of what you can what you can and cannot do. But the two things that will protect you is one, if you have the ability to get a paycheck, a solid paycheck, and two, that you do it through education. And so today I find myself being a psychologist, being a an assistant professor in a college, right? Uh, doing supervision, training other people. And I'm in general, never worried about, can I earn my own livelihood, right? Can I support myself? Can I support my family? And that makes all the difference in terms of me being able to hold my views. Well, this is basically a discussion about intersectionality, right? So Tanisha talks about having some incredible social class and financial resources, as well as support from her father to do things while she was in India that were not traditionally acceptable for females. At the same time, right, she is a woman and 
There are ways in which that held her back. This is intersectionality. When some pieces of ourselves are privilege and give us power, and other pieces we experience bias. Both things are true. That's what intersectionality is. It's awesome, I imagine it sort of like, have you ever seen those um, models of an atom? How the nucleus, everything is spinning. Nucleus is a cell word. I don't know if it's an atom word, but okay, imagine a cell. But imagine there's the different pieces spinning or like a solar system, a system, any system. And we are part of systems and there are the privileges that are spinning around us, but also the biases. So both are true. This is intersectionality. We were talking about how I came to choose America, right? Like, it's, yes. why yes. was America? So the thing is, growing up with this model, I always felt like I was a square peg in a round hole. Yes. Because everyone around me had ideas of freedom. I actually had freedom with my father's support. And so the day I asked him that question, and I'm like, why can my cousin, his name's Richard, why can he go to my great-grandmother's funeral and I have to stay here? He mm -hmm. looked at me straight in the eye and said, do you want to go to the funeral? And I'm like, absolutely. I, I, I want to go. Like, I want to be with her to the last minute that I can. You're taking mm -hmm. my grandmother, great-grandmother away. Why can't I go? And he's like, all right, go inside, tell your mother that you're going to the funeral with us, like going to the crematorium, not the funeral. Oh. And I, I kid you not, I remember this day as clear as like it was yesterday. I went and I told my mother and my mother was like, you can't go. You know, my aunt was like, no, girls don't go there. Like, why are you insisting on this? And this is how you, this is how I understand privilege so well, right? Because they can say all they want to me, but dad has said yes. Right. So you're really done. You're just respectfully listening, exactly. knowing that you're done. Exactly. And if dad's not worried, then, but none of the women went. I was the only one. Mom wow. would have wanted to go. My aunt would have wanted to go. Everybody would have wanted to go. But it was literally, what am I, like 12 or 13 years old at that point? You know, so your I'm mom the only didn't one. go, even no. though you went. So tell me, I want to know how was it? So you went and it's you and all the men. Uh huh. How many people are in the room? Is it a big room, a small room? What, what it's was not it like? a room. It's not a room. So it's literally like an outdoor park. Crematoriums are outdoors okay. because you actually, at that point, we weren't using, um, this is going to sound very weird, but you know, the crematorium has like this giant oven. That yes. was not, at that time, we're talking like 1999. Okay. So we were still making wood pyres, which is still very oh. common in India. And the body is yes. placed within those wood pyres. Yes. There's a ceremony that occurs around yeah. the wood pyre, which is also only performed by men because women aren't even allowed there. So if my father were to die, the idea mm -hmm. is that that ceremony would be performed by a male in the house, even though the right is that of the offspring. <gasps> it has Sweet. to be a male offspring. If your father died, not only would you not be invited to this extremely meaningful but mm -hmm. right, you and I are psychologists so yeah. we know that that process of I'm not giving that right up yeah putting on the wood although it's different now however it is but but that yeah. entire process of watching mm -hmm. and watching you know someone transform into something like all of, all all being of there until the end right like your ability to be by your father Yes. Would be undermined because you're female. 
your loved one, any, any loved one, right? Yeah. But that's actually a parent to a child thing. Wow. Okay. It's generally the next generation that Mm -hmm. would do it. So it would be any of my male cousins, which is not going to happen, but (laughs) (laughs) between the two daughters. But yeah, so the main thing was I was there and there were there were almost like 50 or 60 men, right? This is happening. Almost, imagine it like a park. In India, you don't have like, you know, these spaces. That there's strangers, there's people you know. And everybody was shocked that I was there. Yeah. Everybody. Um, because I sat in the car with my dad to go there. And as soon as I came out, like everybody was like literally staring. Talk about, you know, staring and pulling away from... And I couldn't understand why there had to be that kind of reaction. I was not going there to create social change. I was not going there to challenge the system. But merely by choosing to be by my great-grandmother's side, I had challenged the system. Mm-hmm. Right, And I had zero awareness that I had done that and that it was actually my father who had given me the ability to see that through. And then I did have one complete you know, stranger, like from, from an, from an, like a distant relative or something like that. I, I'd seen him a few times when I was just standing there in the corner and watching as the men were performing the last rites and things. I never insisted on performing the last rites. I, I don't know why. Um, probably because all I wanted to do was be there and not really challenge anything. If I was actually going to challenge things, I'd be like, why can't I do this? You know, but he came up to me and said, like, very quietly when my father was far away, what are you doing over here? <sighs> to a 12-year-old girl. I'm just standing there minding my own business. <laughs> right. I'm not, you know. And your grandmother not, has just died. It's mine. Yeah, She's my grandmother, great-grandmother, as much as she's anybody else's. Right. But more than, actually, more than some of these people who are there. Some, some of these people have no connection to her. I was the one, like, I'm the one she's seen every single day. I'm the one she's raised, right? I'm the one who loves her the way that I do. And it was also very interesting to me that it happened when my father was not in my immediate vicinity, that somebody could actually approach me. But till my father kept like a hand on my shoulder and like kept me around, like nobody would question anything. And then standing in that corner is like, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And I just remember this anger boiling up in me, Kelly, like really boiling up in me. And I looked at him and said, that's my great grandmother. Why are you here? <laughs> I there is nothing on earth like a twelve-year-old girl. Twelve-year-old I mean, with sass. Yes, <laughs> it's a fair question. It is a fair question, but even today I see it as sass, right? Well, I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> in context, it is sassy. Yeah, but it's you know what's interesting. I wonder in the trajectory of your life. So this is obviously one of the big five moments of your life. Absolutely. It's huge. And if you had reacted differently, how that might have changed things. Of course. Yeah. But the interesting thing, so this story apart, obviously, like, I don't, I don't really remember what happened after my sass month. I know I never got into trouble for it. And I told my father that that gentleman had approached me and said all of the things. And his, and his whole thing was education. Remember your ticket. Focus on your ticket. You could do that just now because you're with me, right? Mm-hmm. Someday, if I'm not around, you can still do this. But if you can stand on your own fate like this, 
little did I know that he was preparing me to be a threat to so many people in the world. Yes. Um, <laughs> so many. So many. So many. But that was his thing. And to date, like he'll tell me, like, I had no idea what I was teaching you because now he's a victim of my sass so many times. Of course. But yeah, like, so it, it's really, it's, it's, it comes full circle in the sense that that was one of my most central, but that was what I constantly experienced in India was the, you know, the fighting for something basic. And then also this reinforcement that I'm an anomaly, I'm an anomaly in that I'm too forward thinking, I'm too progressive, I'm too outspoken. What's it like to be an academic in the United States? So you had this idea, you know, of what the United States would be like, mm-hmm. where you would fit or how mm-hmm. how it might feel. What's it like? Yeah, I, I mean, so... It's so interesting because, again, I'm going to go back just a little bit, not to go into that full story. But once I knew, so basically in India growing up, you can say that I didn't feel like that was home. Yeah. I had a a family. I had everything. But in society, I constantly felt like a misfit. Mm -hmm. I I felt like a troublemaker, all of that jazz. But in the U.S., Mm -hmm. those very same values were encouraged. And I'm not going to say, I'll, I'll correct myself, not in the US, but in an academic, in the ivory tower, those values were encouraged, even though they came with their own set of problems. And so I never felt like I wasn't at home in the US. Oh. Like in the first the first two years, I bet you there was homesickness and yeah, I want to go back, yada, yada. But the minute I started to build a social circle here, think about work here, hmm. It was always an understanding that within myself that I'm not going back. Like, this is my life. Uh-huh. So, and then pretty much two years into coming into the U.S., I was in Obama's presidency. 2007 was, <laughs> 2007 was Bush, right? 2008, uh-huh. you know, we had Obama. Uh-huh. And so to be in the U.S. at a time where... You know, the only other experience I had was like Bill Clinton and then you had like George Bush. Everything before that is a blur to me because I was too Mm -hmm. young. But to come into the U.S. under Obama, the Obamas, I'm just going to say that. There there was so much more of a sense of belonging. It was Mm -hmm. our America at that point, right? Like Mm -hmm. I felt like I was desperate to become a formal American. Oh, Like it was always like... This is where I identify things like that. Um, and so when I say that in 2016 was the first time I felt like I felt homeless yeah. as, a, as a psychological experience, mm-hmm. that was when it happened, when Donald Trump was elected. Overnight, there was a shift in me going, wait, where is home? Mm-hmm. And well, and, and let's talk about why that is, because it's not just him, right? hmm I mean, I'm not sure you and I can (laughs) fully articulate what it felt like then. It's been a while and there's been a lot of information, but it, and and I, I, you and I probably talked that day. I think we talked Mm -hmm. the next day, Mm -hmm. you know, it can't be oversimplified saying, well, it's just this person because that's not what it was. It's not. It was And maybe if you can speak a little bit about the feelings that you had throughout the election and the surprise Maybe, and I feel like this is a huge piece. The surprise that many of us felt that so many people supported someone mm-hmm. that was, 
using that type of language and talking about people in othering ways, etc. You see, Kelly, for me, coming from India, I was I was the other, right? I was the other, but I was also the modern minority. Yes. I came from an affluent home. Mm-hmm. I came with impeccable English skills. Mm-hmm. I came with the ability to write. I came as an educated woman from a well-to-do family, mm-hmm. right? And so the U.S.'s doors were wide open for me. At that time? At that time. Well, I, I mean, relatively, in that sense, they still are, right? Because my privilege protects me from so much. Yes. Um but yes, and so I never understood, like some of my closest friends were all African-American women, like um, incredibly strong women. Just like when I think about it now, when I look back, the number of apology phone calls I feel like I have to make, right? Because I never understood mm-hmm. their experience. And I kept going, why do they have to make everything about race? I'm a person of color. But where I was coming from to where I came to was such an upgrade, <laughs> Right. Like suddenly there was more acceptance. Suddenly there was less criticism. Suddenly there were things. But but it never occurred to me that, you know, people are probably not calling me back because my name is Tanisha. Mm -hmm. I would read those articles. They always felt intellectual. They always felt abstract. In 2016, it was like, you know, I feel like it was like Game of Thrones bricks crashing on Cersei and Jamie. (laughs) Like, you know, realization that my privilege had protected me through that entire Obama. So I did not see so much because of my intellectual privilege. So while watching the election, you know, like everything come up, I remember the arrogance with which one of my colleagues at work and I looked at and we'll say, we'll call each other on midnight and pop the champagne open together, right? Because Hillary's going to win. Like, mm-hmm. it's not even a contest. Like, there's no way for this to happen. And I think as we're watching the results come out and sort of looking at it, looking at it, we're just going, no, this is not happening. This is not real. This is not real. And none of it felt real. Even the next morning, it didn't feel real. We were there with swollen eyes, crying constantly. But then I went to work and I I worked in a cancer hospital and a lot of our clients were individuals from rural America. So this is a major cancer hospital in Denver, right? It's the hub for everybody from Nebraska, Nevada, Kansas, like places that these are not people who lived in Denver primarily. Mm-hmm. And I was in my little Denver bubble at the time. Mm-hmm. And so there were patients that I had a relationship with for a while that were just jumping for joy. And and they would look at me and go like, did you not get enough rest? And I happened to say, you know, I'm just really <laughs> bummed about the election. And they'd go, I'm really surprised to hear that. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, like, so it was just like, it was, it was like reality just, you know, how have I been so blind? How could I have been so blind in the, the eight years that I lived under Obama's presidency? But he also, I think that's the whole thing is like, that was privilege in and of itself. And most of my experiences that now I chalk up to racial microaggressions, sexual microaggressions, just, you know, so many experiences. It wasn't until the last four years that I even started realizing that there are these undertones to it. But I'm constantly aware of how complicit I was with that before. The racial undertones of the United States of America, whereas, you know, you're describing coming from a place where it's there, 
right? This is the limit. Don't come on. You're up on the line. Stop. Yeah. Whereas I think what happened in 2016, uh, felt like, holy shit. We thought it was like this, but here all along the way, the lines were there. They were invisible. Exactly. It was like an electric fence. Oh, I just got chills all over my body. <laughs> yeah. It was like an electric fence Yeah, that that was there all along. Yeah. And it was lit. It was on. Yeah. It is on. That people kept banging up against. And then others of us, myself included, would say, what's what's the problem? Yeah. But I don't see any lines. This yeah, is the United States of America. And I think that was incredibly disheartening because I know for myself, and many other people that I never thought he would win because I heard the things he said. And I thought, well, this is the United States. No one's going to, no one's going to say that's okay. And not just the stuff about women, which, okay, that's so horrible. I can't even, but Mm -hmm. all all of it, right. All, you know, calling people, I'm not even going to repeat the things. Right. Um, And the, and the way of speaking around other human beings and, and their, humanity. So, so, but now here we are four years later and to me, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. It almost feels like deeper, more something because Mm -hmm. we've had four years to see the policies, which have benefited, you know, me (laughs) really people that have money that are white and educated. Yep. That's taxes have been great. Mm-hmm. Um, and really no one else and hurting many, many people in many different ways and inciting a way of thinking and being that is uh, unhealthy at best and dangerous. Right. Well, and I would, I would just, just one thing I would say there, it's, you know, it's helped you more, but it's helped people like me as well. Right. Yeah. I, I do think that there is a place for the privilege of being a modern minority, right? So you may see my you may see my name on my resume, which is Tanisha, which will give you an idea that I may be African American. Mm-hmm. Uh, somehow you get past my last name, and you're like, "Wait, what's Joshi? Like we've never Yoshi. What is it? You know what goes on?" And so let's give it a shot. Let's call this person in, and then in walks me, and you can see the relief on their face. Huh. Right? It makes sense. I am an acceptable person of color. I'm still not as good as you, Kelly, like preference would be Kelly, but I'm still, I'm still better off. And so, so that invisible fence, while it's intolerable for my friends who are Mm -hmm. from that African-American, Native American community, right? Mm -hmm. I can bump against it and it stings me but I can work around it because I still have different things going for me. You're a level above. And so regardless, it's all happening under, uh, under a, a massive umbrella of white supremacy, all of that. But within that, there are so many nuances. So I would say that, you know, it's helped you more, but I can't deny that it has helped me. Wow. I think that we have really gone down the rabbit hole with this metaphor and I can't stop thinking. I can't stop thinking about it more. It's because I realized when you said that it doesn't sting me. Yeah. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously I am a woman, mm-hmm. but I'm a white woman. I'm a white, straight, cis, hetero white woman. So right. I'm totally going to think about this metaphor a lot. <laughs> But it's like you walking through a field and I can hop over them 
and they're there, but they're not on. And I'm like, what's the big deal? Come on, just hop over the fence. Right. And then other people touch these different sections of fence and they get zapped. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Pushed back, thrown back. The other thing too, to remember is so much of that fence putting is about staying blind. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it's about not seeing the fence. Like even for me, they allow me to go in and out of that fence with a little bit of a stinger mm-hmm. compared to you. You feel where it. You're just, yeah, you're just in a different zone altogether. And so, yes, the, the fact remains that invisible fence does treat people who it affects like animals. And that's been so much a part of the narrative behind slavery, behind any kind of ism, right, is that you have to mm-hmm. dehumanize in order to even be able to do that. So part of it. It's Albert Bandura. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it just makes me think of, um, oh, what's his amazing, um, the steps of um, moral disengagement. Yes. I wrote about that in my book because that's what we yep. do, right? Like, Oh, everything's fine. Everything's fine. And and we hear that in the rhetoric around Trump all the time. I read it. I read what people say. It's just language because if you don't see any of the fences, then it doesn't matter what right. someone says. What you don't realize is that that sentence just shocked a bunch right. of people. It just re-electrified things that you don't even see or Correct. feel. Correct. Absolutely. So of course it doesn't bother, it doesn't bother you. Yeah, so I don't like the way but he talks. But also the arrogance, but... right? If it doesn't bother me, it doesn't exist. Well, you know, so the stopping to reflect and pause and wait, was my view the only view out there? Like that part, I feel like is so far away still. And it would have been pretty, I'm very, very, very saddened. I won't, I won't say shame because, you know, I don't think I'm a bad person, but I am very deeply saddened. I feel very guilty that for mm-hmm. several years when my friends who were African-American told me their stories, even though externally I kind of knew how to be empathic, internally I always felt like, here they go with the race card again. I better be careful. This is political correctness. Um, you know, you can't say anything these days without being politically correct. Like, the same narrative that now I'm up against because I can see some things that I didn't see before it, it breaks my heart to think that it took the understanding of how does a Trump presidency come about to get into that weight. Very quickly, as I started exploring that, it came back to me. It came back to how I sat with those blinders, how arrogantly I said, oh, yeah, I'm just going to. And so four years out, I'm almost like, all right, I don't know if it was a good or bad thing. I think it was a terrible thing that Hillary Clinton didn't become our president but I also think that this spiritual awakening, this this level of awakening that not just me, but a lot of Americans are going through right now, as disheartening it is to see more and more Trump supporters come out and, you know, the vitriol that he can just allow it to spread. I do see, I do see people like me risking things more, having difficult conversations with their children who are like five and three and barely get it putting out stories of our of, 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 of our journey, of the things that helped us get here, you know, like going out and about and like reclaiming the flag in so many ways, right? Like I always, you know, Amir and I, my husband and I, we drive around the neighborhoods and we kind of see this, you know, we're almost like every time there's an American flag, we're like 
is that a Trump supporter? Is that a Trump supporter? Primarily because I think white Trump supporters have claimed the flag that way. But, but, when, but when I think about it, I have all of these Biden-Harris signs and I have all of that. And I put my little flag next to it. And I'm like, don't try to separate these two concepts for me. <sighs> Oh, I love that. Because the flag used to make me happy. I hear, I'm looking at one right now. Um, You know, my girls, I remember when my eldest child started knowing about the flag. Yeah. The American flag. And she would say, look, 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 it's our flag. It's our flag. And (laughs) I was like, yep. And then... I realized that's something to be proud of, right? It's where you're mm-hmm. from, it, you know, and I used to love it so much. So, mm-hmm. I mean, for a while I thought, you know, I've had to work through my thoughts around that because somewhere along the way, definitely it feels like to have a flag somehow, I don't even know how that happened. How yeah, saying that you're, you know, you have feelings about the country in which you live in is unpatriotic. Um, became a you know a thing maybe you can talk to me a little bit about so you are due with your third baby Mm -hmm. third american yes on election day (laughs) yes it's the day after election but yes so yes so sort of a big deal and Mm -hmm. i'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your family that you've created here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And because it's wonderful. I've met you both, you know, it's, it's, and so I want to hear a little bit more about that, but I also want to make sure that I, that you can say, mm-hmm. if you had the magic wand, you know, classic therapist thing, if you had a magic wand and you could wave it, what would everyone in this country know in their hearts is that too mm. big of a question um I, I, it's a big question it's mm-hmm. not I, I don't know about it being too big or or not it's a big question and the instant reaction was you know who am i to determine for everybody oh, well, right there you yeah and, okay <laughs> and and i think and i think that that i think that's exactly what i want people oh. like if, if there was a magic wand uh-huh. And we did do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, I would want that question to come up for a lot of people, simply, simply because by asking that question, recognizing that my needs are not going to be everybody's needs, and there's plenty. Our country has an abundance of things. Like I'm not going to go into the how unequally it's done, how disproportionately it's done, how the billionaires are getting more, and how poor are getting more. I'm not going to go into that, but if we can ask ourselves, who am I to determine what's best for everybody, mm-hmm. right? And what it should look like for everybody. That's what I would, that, I think that that's what should come up. And the answer should be, I don't know best. So I need to get an idea of what everybody wants and make sure that we're living in that equitable country. So whoever needs whatever. You just, <laughs> whoever needs whatever. I mean, we don't know. We don't know. I don't think, I mean, I think there are some things that we can say, yes, we need these things. You know, everybody should have health care. Yes. It's a belief. It's an opinion. It's something I stand firmly by. Everybody should have access to quality education. Yes, I know that quality can be a difficult term to define, but there shouldn't be a distinction between what is bare minimum 
and what is like, it shouldn't be so far apart. Like these are things we should all be preparing our future generations to live in a world that protects their planet. These are all things that I can say, but I'm nobody to, ter- to determine what works for everybody. Um, and, and kind of recognizing that their reality is different than mine. Wow. So the answer to the question is what would be in people's hearts is openness, curiosity, and a willingness to be diverse in thought. Like who knows? Absolutely. We don't Absolutely. And humility. I think, I think the main thing is that cultural humility. You know, I'm thinking about the cultural humility piece is that when there's a question as an answer to a question, it opens up more doors than, you know, an answer is going to just give you an answer and it's going to slam the door. So, mm-hmm. yes, there should be a path to progress. Mm-hmm. Like, like there really should be. That's made up of, like you said, curiosity, number one, open mindedness, which is I'm not going to like everything that comes my way. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to. Um, and then, of course, the pursuit of more answers and diverse answers. Mm-hmm. It is, I think there is no choice, but diversity has to be the strength. It it cannot be a burden we carry. And, you know, we can't divide ourselves into factions. Like, I, it, it has to merge somewhere. I don't know how many years down the line, but that is a goal that I know that I'm working with in terms of raising my girls and now my son. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's a different way of thinking entirely. And, and, I, and I've been really spending time contemplating this. The idea rather than, you know, this is the way that we've done things. And, I, you know, so for you and I, we just talked about this fence. I'm sorry, I have to return to it, but I love the metaphor so very much. And how, you know, of course... Oh my goodness, Tanisha. I mean, I grew up at, 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 as who I am, right? So how many decades did I spend running blithely through fields, not realizing other people were being zapped, right? Right. So, and I, and I, you know, I, I think about that and what impact that had on other people. But so I noticed them now. And then it took me again, another long time to realize after I noticed them, I patted myself on the back probably for like five years or more, <laughs> right? Like, oh, I see these fences. Isn't that great? Yay. Everything. Yeah. What you need to do now is see fences. It could even be longer. I don't know. I've lost track of all yeah. time. <laughs> and now it feels like we're at a place and I, I agree with you. And this, this really filled my whole heart up with something. I don't know quite what yet. The idea that what had happened in 2016 could have been a positive thing because you're right. I was lazy. I was totally sitting around on my high knee feeling pretty great about myself as this psychologist that wrote about like race and culture and gender. Mm-hmm. Although I was really focused on gender. And it has completely shifted in the past four years. I have definitely shifted from gender, which is extremely important, and to a much wider intersectional based lens and have realized how much I have to learn. I kind of thought I was at the finish line and now I feel really all kind of feelings about that. (laughs) And now I'm like, holy shit, I don't even, there's, I can't even see the end of what I don't understand. Yeah. And action is required of me. Mm -hmm. I literally was patting myself on the back for years about understanding. 
Yeah. No, and it is it is a paradigm shift, right? Like the, the for me the shift is this is all going to be about the journey, not the destination. Yes. Yes. Like that was such a huge shift that I had to go into in order to stay engaged because every time I tried to do it perfectly, mm-hmm. shame took over because I would fail, yeah. right? Like taking individual responsibility at a you know for failures at a systemic level, I'm taking it personally when you know, so like when, when so many, so many times, like the questions that I see is why are people just waking up now? Because these things are getting recorded, right? Yes. Like the murders of yes. African-American men, the, the sending of uh, the school, the school to prison pipeline, especially African-American boys. And why I am I just, what in the hell? I know <laughs> exactly, but that's the thing is like, I can still like some of the things that Hillary Clinton did. And I still think that she, she would have allowed this to perpetuate. Yes. Yes. I would, have, you know, I would have stayed complacent. And so, yes, hello Clinton. Absolutely. Over there. This is not about one political party. It's, it's sort of what we've done as a collective, but to, for me, it just comes down to when, an African-American individual asks that question. It's a moment, you know, like, why are you believing this now? Why didn't you believe me first? The only thing I have is a heartfelt apology. It's a, you are right. I recognize my privilege protected me. And I recognize that now I need to get in the fight and I need to elevate your voice. I need to support you. I need to be correcting myself over and over because when that fence zapped you, it took things away from you. You need medical attention. You need love. You need comfort. You need sort of this idea. Like it's not one fence that they went through, right? Like it's just over and over. They see Kelly running through the fence. They see Tanisha like, you know, stumbling at the line, but still crossing over the fence. And then they go and they're zapped. And it, it takes, you know, you you would think that I think about it as so much trauma because so many times I'll see people like, you know, my, my, my how long are you going to blame me for what my ancestors did? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's very interesting to be in that position because I can totally say my ancestors didn't do anything. My ancestors were brought to a different part of your country, <laughs> but, you know, but the, the point being that it's not that, but when the, when our ancestors set those traps, those fences, what they also did was made generations and generations of people afraid to go close to anything that resembled offense. Think about PTSD, right? Like they're all triggers. And so who who has to do that work if we want to bring them along? And that they have a right to come along is indisputable. It's a fact to me. That's not an opinion. That's not that's not a strong belief. That's just we gotta figure out how to make it up to so many, so many people. Um, and it starts with our own reactions when we see them, right? Like you see, like for example, you see this reaction if I see somebody wearing garish clothes, right? And that person happens to be African-American, just happens to be. And I instantly catch myself going, wow, if they would just dress professionally, yeah. I have to catch myself. I have to. Mm-hmm. I I can feel bad that that happens. I have to be able to say, Look, it happened again. You got to keep working on this. Yeah, that that catching the bias catching is constant, and it it's you can really get stuck in the shame. It's easy mm-hmm. to think, "Oh my God, 
what the, that is still hiding in there. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, it happens. It happens. It happens. And, yeah. and, you know, I think something I didn't realize before in life and I'm sure, and it makes me wonder what I'm not like, what I'm still completely fucking up. Like, <laughs> right. There, there's so much I'm saying something mm-hmm. right now that someone will listen to and say, ah, Becky. Yeah. Right. Or Karen. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. Yes. Like I am doing it. I'm, and, and I'm, you know, and I'm thinking how careful I'm being. And sometimes I think, Oh my God, it's so disheartening. I'm on and I am trying to be on it and I'm still messing up. What about people that don't even want to see it yet? Right. right. And that's fine. Because you know why? Because I will try to, the, the fences need to be dismantled. And I, and I see that that's where people Probably a large number of people who support the president, they're stuck because they're afraid. Because it's true that when you have equalities, some things you have might be different. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I, and I talked about this in a video I made. That means I will have to share more than I currently mm-hmm. do. And I, I don't know, but you're just going to have to get your head around that. Like, yes, you're going to, like, things meet for equality to happen when. People have more, so there's going to have to be a leveling out and mm-hmm. it's uncomfortable. And, and, you know, I've said this, it's hard sometimes. So I, you know, I try to, um, you know, I get offered, uh, here, put your, you know, we have this article we're writing. Do you want to say something about it? And, and I've noticed, and this is wonderful. I've noticed in the past couple of months, they'll, they'll say specifically like, you know, BIPOC, which, you know, black indigenous people of color person mm-hmm. of color and I'll and my first reaction was like oh, because I'm still very angry about sexism and mm-hmm. it and it fills me up sometimes and I think ah but I am a woman like mm-hmm. no like we are not mm-hmm. we are not equal yet and I have to check myself hard yeah. and be like woman nothing mm-hmm. will change until we dismantle and one way to do that is to constantly be thoughtful about giving the megaphone to someone else. Right. But, but I find myself, ha- like, I'll have a feeling about that. For sure. For sure. I, I, my catching has to come in a different way where, I mean, obviously you see me, I look Indian. I definitely don't look like a white woman. And most of the times people will project onto me, well-intentioned people will project onto me a much harsher and harder reality yeah. than, than I actually have claim to. One that would be very easy for me to hide under and just go, yeah, that's happening. You know, I have to remember that when I'm interacting with especially white men, I'm very much in that person of color category and things like that. But there are other times where, you know, I've even made it to the place that African-American women and Native American women haven't even gotten access to. Now, the fact that I get there and then I'm hit with racism and misogyny, I've gotten further. <laughs> I've gotten further and it's not taking away from my experience. I have to recognize that it's all operating under white supremacy. But oftentimes the check has come is in kicking that privilege back and saying, uh-uh, like you can't just take that up because all these people have been advocating for you and now you can just reap the benefits. So be a person of color when it's helpful, but then also have all of this privilege. Like, how do you balance that? And, and checking that has been 
exhausting, <laughs> like to say the least. But it's also what allows me to go to bed knowing that if I fail today, I can wake up and do better tomorrow. And 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 I think that's just it. We just have to get to that point where we can take that. But some nights it's really hard to sleep because of the things that happen on my watch. Because in those moments, the privilege is taken over. I'm blind to it. But other nights where it's a hard fight and I created, like not created, but I allowed conflict to happen because I stood up for something. It's the same value that I had when I left India to come here. But now it's just like, not just escaping it because the grass was greener, but coming here and recognizing that no matter where you go, as long as sexism, racism, all those isms, whether they exist in India, caste, caste systems or casteism, as long as that exists, it's you're going to have to fight it everywhere. Whoa. What we're asking for is so exciting. It's imagination. Yes. And creativity. Yeah. Shedding off of what we are comfortable with in so many ways, right? Like when we talk about gender and sex and marriage and ah, ah, it, these huge concepts, it's a shedding mm-hmm. off of sometimes ancient beliefs, but, you know, just like let them go and what mm-hmm. we could create. And I, that's where the friction is. That's it's deep. It's, mm-hmm. you know, literally. It's unlearning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it's unlearning. So much. And then once you unlearn that, what's left? Where's our certainty coming from? Where's our control coming from? Where's the power coming from? Are we going to be able to survive it? When we talk about politics, I think it helps to talk about specific policies. A lot of times I see people say, oh, it doesn't matter how the president talks or I don't support those thoughts. But what I want to focus on, what I think helps, is policies. So we can talk about the environment and how that impacts people in different ways and how climate change will impact people who are experiencing poverty first and most to begin with and how all of those are important pieces of equity. We could talk about jobs and access to healthcare and schools. But what I want to talk about for a minute is one of the topics that's very important and prevalent right now, which is defunding the police. What does it mean? Well, I'm gonna tell you my reaction when I first heard it, but Tanisha and I are gonna talk about it because it's a very specific issue and it's important to dig into these topics and be able to understand through open dialogue how these policies are impacting people today and how By changing the way that we currently approach policing in this country, we can create a more equal future together. When I saw defund the police, I clutched my pearls and pooped my pants. I I just saw this defund the police. I'm like, well, now we've gone too far. That was my initial, I literally, I mean, I wasn't wearing, you know, I clutched my metaphoric pearls and pooped my pants. And I had to take a deep breath. (laughs) I set my white lady self on the chair beside me and do a little reading. And of course, do I think marketing wise, that might be the worst hashtag that anyone has ever come up with ever? Yes, because every single thing, of course I agree with that. I'm a psychologist. Do we need mental health care? Something I don't think people understand is Mm -hmm. that we have no mental health care system 
anymore. I agree. There's no system in this country. Yeah. And that unless yeah. you live in the suburbs, so if you live in an inner city, actually there's a little bit more uh, mental health services in an inner city than you find, for instance, in a rural area. It's mm-hmm. horrible. So mm-hmm. if one of my patients needs something, I have to call the police. I, mm-hmm. That's what we mean by defund the police now. Right. I put my pants. And then as I read, this is everything I've been feeling for years. You know, but it, the terms as being who I am, I thought, well, what does that mean? We, you know, but then I thought of all my work and all these years of having to call people who are not trained or very, very minimal training in, for instance, you know, um, moving a homeless person from a spot that people aren't comfortable with, who likely has some kind of diagnosis going on, who may or may not be having a psychotic break. I mean, I've watched this happen and, yeah. and they, you know, all they see is someone that's belligerent, who's potentially dangerous. And, you know, so when I think about things like that, I'm, it would be such a glorious future to imagine that social safety net and that reallocation of funds Mm -hmm. to help people get better or feel safe at least have somewhere safe to go instead of you know let's just put you in prison for the night and that's not going to make anything better obviously no but i have to say that at first i had that reaction and i had to spend the time and work it through and then feel all the shame and the embarrassment and the shittiness of, Oh God, like, you know, underneath all this, I'm still caring inside (laughs) because you know, that's a lifetime of, so, you know, I work it through and now, you know, I think about it a lot and all the wonderful ways that we could spend that money. People are afraid. And when people fear fear, they make bad choices. Absolutely. Okay, let me take a minute and talk about this whole Karen Becky thing. Because for any of you listening who are feeling upset about that, I feel like I need to talk to you about it. So first of all, I'm a Kelly. It could have just as easily been Kelly as Karen. What does it mean? Where does it come from? Well, you know, it is a really quick and easy way to describe someone who, well, first of all, when I say Karen, you probably think a picture in your head just as if I said Kelly. So I'll use the word Kelly from now on because I'm fine owning that. I am a lot of the things that come along with the idea of a Kelly. I am a white woman and I often have reactions to things that I just talked about, two different things in this short podcast where I have a reaction that I have to check or it can hurt someone else. And what do I mean by hurt someone else? It can be a microaggression, right? I can have that reaction. And since I have privilege, that means I have power. So I could have a reaction. That's sort of the classic purse clutching, right? Like I see someone walking down the street, I grab my purse or worse, I'm in a position to hire someone, excuse me, and I don't choose someone with a name that might sound black or in any other way, like something that wouldn't feel comfortable to me on a visceral level based on that bias. So that's what it means. And why, why am I using that term if I'm here saying, oh yes, let's be equal? Well, it's not equal. So here, here's why it's okay to say things like Karen. Because most white people at this point in time don't even have awareness around their privilege. And black people and other people of color 
and people that aren't straight, et cetera, are experiencing the ism, right? They're experiencing discrimination. They're experiencing bias in this realm. Remember intersectionality when we're talking about intersectionality. So when, when we're talking about Karen or Becky, we're talking about a white person. And so that is a way for someone who is experiencing bias, black person or a person of color, to quickly say, oh, that person doesn't get it. And when, if you're a person that's not able to see what you don't see or see your privilege in life, then that is what it means. It's a person that's not seeing their own privilege or seeing how they impact other people just by their very existence in life in this arena. So if you take offense to it, I want you to stop and think, am I aware of my privilege? Am I aware of how I impact other people just by my pure being here at this place in time? And if you can't look at that, well, I would ask why, right? So don't be a Kelly. So any last words? This is like what we always ask, right? Like at the end of a class or any, if there's anything I haven't asked. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the only thing that like in the context of everything we've talked about, I'm going to bring it back to an experience of mine and you can see how you want to use it. But it's the night before I'm going to be granted my citizenship. And the next day is my oath taking ceremony. And I can tell you this, I felt so torn. I felt really, really torn. So this was, so 2016 was when Trump won. 2007, August was when I landed in the US for the first time. And 2020 in, I think it was like, I want to say July was when my citizenship application went through and, you know, I'm good to go and come in, do your oath ceremony. And I was just like, should I even go? Right. Like, what what is America? Like, do they even want me here? Do I want to be? What is this? Like, I, I am a foreigner. So everything that people have said to me about being an outsider, go back to where you came from, yada, yada, all of that still stings. Is this really my America? And does what does becoming an American in this context mean? And I was actually watching, uh, I think it's like a stand-up or something by Hassan Minaj. I don't know if you've ever come across it, but he actually in his piece turned around and said something like, when you become an American citizen, you don't just get to own the country's excellence. You have to own its failures. That is the deal. It is a direct quote from from a stand-up by Hassan Minaj. And when I was just like really grappling with that, and I happened to, I believe the universe brings you exactly what you need, right? At the time that you need it. And I needed to go into that naturalization ceremony knowing what I was doing. I was born into India. I had no choice there. I made the choice to come to America. And over here, I have no control over people who tell me this is not my home. Mm -hmm. But they can only tell me that as long as I believe on the inside that this is not my home. Mm -hmm. Right? And so if I can categorize and see those people as people who have as much access to America, right? Like you were just lucky that you were born here. So, so I've had to work for my citizenship. So that's my new SAS for people who like it. who would tell me to go home. But internally, I was really struggling with this because this country has brought so much to my life and it's also brought so much pain, right? I'm separated from my in-laws. My husband is separated from his family. My daughters and my son now don't have access to an entire half of their family because my husband is Iranian. 
we're killing black boys. We're killing black women. We've partaken in a genocide of Native American indigenous people. This is all, this is all that, you know, this is part of our history. And as I'm taking an oath to protect, like to become a citizen of America, I have to reconcile that this is what I'm choosing. And so this quote just brought it back. Like, I'm very happy to own this country's excellence. You know, I do that with ease. I do that naturally. And that's what I like to associate myself with. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, that's not just what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to own its failures as well. Mm-hmm. And every country on the planet is going to have this. America is like, I feel like it works toward, like when, when we see it, mm-hmm. we come out, fight, we protest. And, and, and we see, that, you know, we see so much happening. You have the choice to enter a resistance. You yes. have a choice to start checks and balances. And I'm sure that I'm saying things that are very privileged in this as well. And I'm aware that I am because I'm sitting in a comfortable home, recording a podcast on a Monday morning with my kids in a very good school, Mm -hmm. being protected with people cleaning my house as it's going on. So I'm aware, I'm very, very, very aware that I've owned more of its excellence and like benefited from it. But this was what came back to me is that I have to own both. And so I can have this and I can continuously guilt and shame myself to the point where I'm so afraid that I other the problem and give it to somebody else, or I can have this Mm -hmm. and I can continue to strive to bring it to as many people and revamp it. And yes, if that means I have to pay more taxes, I have to pay more taxes, Mm -hmm. right? If that means I have to call mental health services, add more pro bono people to my Thing mm-hmm. bring up diversity in contexts where diversity seemingly may not be playing a role, put myself out there, make myself uncomfortable, then that's a very small price to pay. But I am American. What does this episode of Radical Connectivity with Tanisha and I have to do with radical connectivity? Well, everything. <laughs> when we talk about government or policies, As I mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, it's all very personal. When choices are made that impact policies, they impact our everyday life. And the policies and the government itself are based on the systems we as human beings have created, constructs that we believe based on what we know, what our perception is, and what we see around us every day. And those systems help some people and they hurt other people. What Tanisha and I are talking about today, what you just listened to, and thank you for listening, was all about our shared dream of the future and the idea that we could change things, right? That we need to dismantle some of the ways that we think and act so that there can be more equality for more people. And I mentioned an example of something that, I, that I've noticed that's been difficult for me to give up, right? The ability to get up quotes because, you know, more journalists are looking for people that are black or indigenous people of color and how I react to that. But it's so much more than that too, right? Like that's a small thing, but also let's think about healthcare. Will healthcare change if more people have equal access to it? Yes. And so what are we willing to share is sort of what I come back to again and again. And what are the constructs that we have in our lives that we can look at as constructs, things that we humans have created, 
and alter them to benefit more people. What could be more central to connecting with other people than being open to creating equality for them by making a seat at the table, making space for someone else? I can't think of anything also more radical than the idea that we are surrounded ourselves with notions and ways of being and believing that might hurt other people. There's nothing more radical than that. So these ideas I bring to you with this true deep hope, I, I have this vision where we can sort of recreate some of the ways that we are. We'll have to tear down some of the things that we do, some of the ways of being in order to create space for new ways of thinking and being. And holy shit is that frightening to myself standing here. And am I thinking of some people that might listen and think, what is she even talking about? I get that. And I know that changing the future is frightening. We want to hold on to what we know and we think that it's great. But I'll ask you, if a world where some people, or let's focus on our country, if a country where some people feel like they are either explicitly or implicitly being told, get out, it's not yours, is the kind of place where you want to live, then I would wonder if you might want to stop and think about that, if that's the way that we want things to be, or if we're willing to step back and reevaluate all the things that we surround ourselves with in order to create more equality. Radical, radical equality and connectivity. There's nothing deeper than that. And I just ask you to think, if you're having reactions to anything that we talked about today, if you can please wonder about that, wonder why. Wonder why you had a strong reaction to something that I said or Tanisha said or an idea. And I'll tell you what, she rocked me when she, when I asked her what she would want people to take with them. And she said, I don't know. I don't know what should be in people's hearts. And it occurred to me, isn't that a wonderful way to approach things? We don't know what other people need or what would help make things more equal. What if we start from that place rather than thinking that we know how things should be? how they shouldn't be or what might be best for everyone. What a great, amazing concept full of imagination and creativity. If you have thoughts, comments, feelings, reactions about something I've said today, if I, if I you know, need to be taught, if I said something that was really super unaware, please let me know. Reach out if you, if you feel like you have the energy and you want to do that. Have a great day. I'm so glad you joined. Thanks. Well, it's time for Ask Dr. Kelly. And today, to make it pertinent, I would like to answer the question that I have been asked, which is, how do I learn more about racial identity development or what it's like to be whatever race that you happen to be in America? If you've been listening to this entire episode and you feel like... "Mm, I don't know. I want to learn more. How can you do that? Well, luckily, we live in an age where many, many things are available online. And I would encourage you strongly to look up the ideas of racial identity development. There are many people who have done work in this area. Uh, Janet Helms at Boston College, who I had an opportunity to learn from, uh, has done an incredible amount of work about uh, around the ideas of um, white racial identity development, person of color racial identity development. And so if you've thought to yourself, if you're white and you've thought to yourself, well, I'm, I'm white, I don't really have a race. That's not entirely true. Everyone has, actually, that's not, not entirely true. That's just not true. 
everyone has a race and it's not necessarily where you come from. Like Euro-American, African-American, Caribbean-American, wherever, there's more to it than that. And we all go through stages of identity development. And so the answer to the question, how could you learn more if you're feeling like, oh, I'm curious about that. There are so many books. You can look on my website, www.drkellydonahoe.com. There are a lot of resources that I've written there and things that I've tried to provide to start uh, your reading about what is it like to experience something different than I do in this country. And it never hurts to learn more and to read and to ask. Um, So you can reach out that way and begin to understand a little bit more, if you don't already, but we all have places to learn, about where we are in our our racial identity development because we all have an identity, whether we are aware of it or not. Um, Again, you can send, that was a question people ask me a lot, how do I learn more about this, what you're talking about? And that's my simple, straightforward answer. There's a ton of resources out there. You can Google it, look it up, dig in, and then sort of work through your feelings around it. Please don't stop at shame. Uh, Shame doesn't help us grow and learn. It stops us from being vulnerable and open, and then we can't connect with other people around us. So if you feel shame, reach out, talk to some other people, and realize that we all have bias, every single person on earth, and we need to work through it. One other resource that I'd love to offer to you is the Harvard Implicit Awareness Tests, IATs. You can look that up online and for free, take any of those tests and learn a little bit more about where your bias lies. I know I took them and uh, was very surprised by some of my reactions and much less surprised by others, but lets you know where your bias is, again, that we all have so that you can work through it. I wanna wish you all safety and good luck over the next couple of weeks. You know, I'm happy that you listened and I thank you for joining in. I'd love to hear your feedback and comments, so take care and be well. Talk to you soon. And again, don't forget to send those questions to Ask Dr. Kelly and they can be about anything, anyone. Have a great day. Bye.